Nancy Nichols, welcome to Lake Forest College. Thank you. And to my environmental psychology class and some guests. Hi, guys. So we are having our interview today in Glen Rowan House, which is a Howard Van Doren Shaw building. And all of us know Howard Van Doren Shaw in this room from his design of Market Square, and we've all been to Ragdown as well. I'd like to thank David Levinson, who's our academic technology specialist, and Kristen, I don't see, who manages this building. And I'm going to introduce Nancy in a moment, but before I do that, first I'd like my class to just go around in a circle and introduce yourselves to Nancy with your name and major and where you're from. I'm Stephanie, and I'm an environmental studies major, and I'm from the Chicagoland area. Hi, I'm Brianna. I'm a biology major, and I'm from Gurney. Hi, I'm Lucy. I'm an environmental studies major, and I'm from Chicago. I'm Teresa, and I'm a psychology major, and I'm also from Chicago. I'm Austin. I'm an environmental studies major, and I'm from Los Angeles. I'm Daniela. I'm from Chicago, and I'm double majoring in Spanish and environmental studies. I'm Kaylee, I'm from Chicago, and I'm an environmental studies major. I'm Jenny, I'm from Northbrook, and I'm a double major in economics and environmental studies. I'm Marissa, I'm an independent scholar, and I'm from Denver. I'm Amy, I'm majoring in economics and Spanish, and I'm from Colorado as well. I'm Alex, I'm a philosophy major, and I'm from Mundelein, Illinois. And we're missing one California person, Chris Korth. And we have two guests today. And could you introduce yourselves to my class? Just go ahead. Okay, I'm Mary Frantroja. I'm a guest primarily of, of Nancy. And um, should I reveal how long you've known? <laughs> I was her debate coach in high school. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really a long time. And we're both from Waukegan, and I'm with the Clean Power Lake County uh, campaign to close the coal plant down at the lake. And I've been with the group for about four years. We're affiliated or a parent to Sierra Club. And um, the lake I knew was different from the lake that Nancy knew. And what I did not know uh, was that it was very polluted. And the air that I breathed um, was also very polluted. And uh, not knowing those things has made a big difference in a lot of lives. And there's been a lot of damage to lungs, to bodies, to minds, just having that kind of pollution and citizens not knowing about it and economic realities impacting all of it. So that's why I'm here. I wanted to hear what um, she was saying today and what's going on. Thanks for being here. And I'm Susie Hoffman, and uh, I work for Lake Forest Open Lands as the director of the Center for Conservation Leadership, which is an educational outreach program for high school students in um, throughout Lake County, a lot of Waukegan and North Chicago, as well as Lake Forest and many other suburbs. Um, and I am a lover of Lake Michigan, grew up on it. I certainly knew it was very polluted. It's a different lake than it was when I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 
and um, love the lake and uh, I'm basically a scholar of the lake so I'm happy to meet you. I also love Waukegan and spent a lot of time there so I came from there this morning. I'm happy to be here also. Susie teaches our environmental education class mm -hmm. and she may be teaching lake effect next semester. Right. But, mm -hmm. So a lake by the college. <laughs> So let me tell you a little bit about Nancy Nichols. So Nancy grew up in the heyday of Waukegan's prosperity and pollution. Those things were happening as they often do simultaneously. Um, she left, went east to the East Coast and has been the senior editor at the Harvard Business Review and the Monitor Group, a reporter for a McNeil Lehrer Hour and a founder of the Great Idea Studio. Doing all this, she's also been a wife and a mother, has a son about your age. In 2008, she published um, this book, Lake Effect, which is what I call a science memoir. It's a book that interweaves the personal and the scientific to tell a story. And this book is the heart of the Lake Forest College and Lake Effect Environmental Archive which is a project um, that houses Nancy's research materials for this book, which she worked on while she was in residence at Ragdale. Mm -hmm. And um, it was funded by a grant from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. So we set this up actually with a couple students from this course about four years ago who got very interested in this book and wanted to help with the materials. I thought we'd start, because we know that stories matter to you. Could you just tell the story of how you got from a Waukegan childhood to this book? I'm happy to do that. I will just say one thing that we do want this, we discussed earlier, we want it to be a safe space. This is troubling material to anyone. You guys know what you need to do, and there are plenty of resources here at the college, but you should feel free to come and go. I want everyone to feel really comfortable and quite relaxed. So. I was a high school debater. I brought my debate coach here to prove it. Uh, and I started very awkwardly learning about how you make argument, learning about how you marshal evidence. And I went first to the University of Chicago and then went to film school at NYU and started working in television. And what my very first published piece was an op-ed in the Chicago Tribune about the pollution in the lake. And I spent a lot of time as a reporter, and my sister got quite sick, and she asked me to write about her illness, which launched me into this decades-long project to understand the pollution in Lake Michigan. So I thought we'd actually start with some of your questions about stories and metaphors, since stories matter. And we'll see how this goes. So Marissa, you, your first question is about metaphor. Sure. Um, so I wanted to ask, you argue that the stories we choose to tell ourselves and the metaphors that we use to talk about illness matter. Could you discuss the survivor, warrior, and witness metaphors? Why don't we focus more on the why of cancer? So, these are just such good questions, and they're such good, they're just long essays. So, survivorship as an idea 
want to say started with this woman named Bet Betsy Rowland. She was a news reporter who was one of the very first women to, to go public with her breast cancer. The cancer was something that, first of all, you didn't survive very long and you never told anybody you had it. It was the C word and people whispered it. Um, and so people didn't really survive very long, so there weren't a lot of survivor stories. But that book and then Happy Rockefeller, who was married to the vice president at the time, she was a Rockefeller. She went public with her breast cancer. There was an African-American poet named Audre Lorde, who's an amazing woman. She was a, a lesbian, African-American feminist poet. Uh, she went public in a very beautiful memoir. And so what happened was people started to talk about and be survivors, because people survived it. And then it really took off with Lance Armstrong, where people got this idea that we're all going to get together and we're going to fight this disease. So that's where survivor comes from. I, I, if you noticed in the book, I'm really uncomfortable with that as a metaphor and a way to think about it. And I prefer witness, because I think that that's I think give, even given its Christian metaphor, I still think it's the right way to think about cancer and the right way to think about other people who are involved in, in, in having an illness. The warrior metaphor in my book was a very just a sweet thing that my son did when he called me Mama Warrior. And uh, I, I see the importance for that, especially if you look at people who are fighting an illness themselves at a certain point. And I see how that's really useful to certain individuals. I'm not sure as a society I feel really comfortable with that terminology, <coughs> but you might have different feelings about it. Makes sense. Um, I also, just on the same, the topic of Mama Warrior, you mentioned that that's what your son called you when you um, were diagnosed when he was eight. Um, looking back, what do you think that we should tell children about cancer? And as a mother with cancer, is there anything that you wish you would have done differently? Are you, are you a child psychic? I am not, <laughs> no. Um, as a mother, so in terms of like protecting his health or in terms of protecting him emotionally? Um, you know, the latter, but I think that the former is just as important. So, emotionally, it, for those people who know a lot more about child development than I do, the psych majors here, it would depend on which kid you had and how old that kid was. So for my son, when we told him I had cancer, he was like, this could need like a lot more play dates for me, couldn't it? <laughs> you know, like he saw it as something that would be an an advantage for him because I'd be sick and he'd have like more freedom. <laughs> and you know it kind of works, right? Because you can remember being a selfish little kid probably. And I, I don't want to really drop this in too dramatic a way, but after the book was published, my son himself developed leukemia. So he is a child, survivor of childhood leukemia. So he got that when he was 15. And it's really too bad he isn't here to talk to you about it. I think when he came to grips with his own cancer, he felt very clearly that he had not really realized how sick I was and how dangerous my situation was. It was only later, and this is probably developmental too, because there's a certain age in which you really do grasp the idea of mortality. So I think 
the other part of the question, which is much more difficult and you'll all face as, as parents, is what you do to protect your children from environmental toxins. And that would be probably a much more, well, you know a lot about this, but I, I think that's going to be much more of an issue for your generation. Right. Is that helpful? Yes, yeah, absolutely. The Thank you. There's a related question, Sammy, your question about the Arthur Frank quote. Oh, right. Um, you used the following quote by Arthur Frank. Illness is not presented to the ill as a moral problem. Mm -hmm. How do you interpret what he says, and what is the significance of this quote to you? So I looked this up because I was questioning it myself <laughs> after I did it. Um, mm -hmm. And he... So first of all, if you haven't read his books and you have a chance, it's called The Wounded Storyteller. And he, he was at the forefront of something called uh, the illness narrative. And so as people began to live longer with cancer, they began to write and talk about what their experience of it was. And he very carefully delineates, like it used to be when you were sick, you would just do what the doctor told you. And the experience of the patient, both because they didn't live very long, and also because it was a very hierarchical situation. You did what the doctor told you, and you didn't speak about your illness. It was an unspeakable thing. He started to talk about the morality of telling stories and what a story would mean. And he means it in a very specific sense that I'm not going to try to go, but you might be helpful. Kierkegaard and what it means to be immoral. Are you, aren't you a philosophy major? So he's like this very sophisticated philosopher and scholar. And so I think he means it in a very specific way. But I found this really good piece of his book. It said, what the story teaches is there is always another story. And other stories have always been possible. One meaning of this lesson is that life is lived in decisions, each setting in place a different way of telling the story. Because these decisions have consequences, the plot cannot be reversed at will at any point. They are moral. So it's about how we present ourselves in the world. Is that helpful? Does that make sense, given what you've said a little bit? Yeah. I have to look at more of the context of it. You should read him if you have a chance. It's called okay. The Wounded Storyteller. Okay. Hi. That's the answer. So there's another story here, Stephanie. Um, the story of environmental justice. That's your question number two. Um, question number two. That's now there is information available about various toxins in fish, such as mercury, for example. Why has it taken so long for the public to become aware of these issues? So, it's a really good question. I would say, so we've known about the dangers of mercury since the time of Alice in Wonderland. Remember the Mad Hatter? Mm -hmm. So that character had mercury poisoning. So it isn't as if people didn't realize it, the dangers of mercury. It's a slightly different form of mercury, and it has to do with the way the emissions that Mary Fran works on, the emissions from the coal plants 
that eventually gets into the fish. And I don't think it's really a question of knowledge. I think it's a question of how do you act. And I think, so I think more and more people know, but I don't think knowing always leads to action. And I think that's why another topic that is of interest to me, especially is it interesting to me in, in the sense of how you guys are experiencing this class and the book, is I think that information without action can lead to anxiety. And I'm wondering about that and its impact. Is that all useful? Yeah, no, that's really interesting. All right, you guys can talk back. No, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's really good to think about uh, how that might play into things. And your own choices and what you choose to eat and what you choose to do politically. You know, this being a psychology class, like you gotta take into account the anxiety that could be caused by things too much here. Right, or how it just, the information impacts you. Because there's no end to the information. I mean, you guys, so we used to like have to go to the library. We would have to ask, some of you remember this, we would have to ask, we would order the microfilm of the day. This is how I started this book. I would order the microfilm of a date of the, when the plant closed or whatever happened. A librarian would bring it to you. You would put it on a reel. You would go like this until you found your article. Then you would photocopy it, and that's how you did your research. So you can't imagine how much more information it is. So I can't think that the knowing of it is the problem. So this notion of information without anxiety, mm -hmm. or information without action, might make us anxious. I've thrown that at you this semester with all the work we did on uh, light pollution, I think. Mm -hmm. How about what? Are we finding? <laughs> no, I'm thinking more about sending you out to look at night skies where there aren't any stars. You know, and suddenly you see what you don't, what you should see and you're not. And I've never, I, I don't know. How do you feel about that? You guys have to talk. <laughs> We're not doing all the work. <laughs> I mean, it's scary to think that, like, it's the new norm of, you know, not having a night sky. Yeah, I mean, I've grown up in Chicago my whole life, like a lot of people, and I'm used to not seeing any stars. And I didn't understand why, really, we didn't have stars here. And then after this class, it, it was sad to learn that, like, we're why we don't have stars. Mm -hmm. And then it makes you appreciate when you go to a place that has lots of stars. It's like way more exhilarating mm -hmm. to see all of them. Right. I mean, it makes me anxious because it's like there's environmental things that we don't know we're missing out on, like the stars, for example. You know, they're like if you live in a city for so long you don't even know what a real night sky looks like. There's that kind of lack of information, but then there's this this new kind of lack of information where we have it at our fingertips, but we choose to not acknowledge it, you know, kind of tying it back to what you were saying. 
how it's not a problem of information, it's a problem of action. Um, so, and I mean, maybe that even ties into it too. There's too much information that we just choose not to take action, mm -hmm. choose to ignore it. So that's, it's scary for sure. Mm -hmm. As long as we're on these dark topics, we have some dark questions. Oh, I specialize in Should we dark. go? Yes. <laughs> so, Jenny, yeah. um, your question number one about body burden. Yeah. Um, could you talk about the idea of body burden uh, for toxic chemicals? And I guess the idea that if toxins stay in our bodies and can be passed down through generations, even if we cleaned up the environment now, would we ever be free of chemicals in our bodies? That's such a good question, and I really thought about that. So, getting back to your point about information, right? So, I can't remember if this is in the book, but the way people began testing for body burden came about after the use of defoliants in the Vietnam War, the Agent Orange, right? And so they were testing the veterans to try to understand what was going on with their syndromes. They had multiple chemical exposures. And that's when they became, began to realize that everybody has a body burden. However, as I said before, like mercury and lead are very old toxins. So it isn't as if we suddenly had body burdens when we started testing for it, right? There's a whole literature that says that it was the lead and the goblets that was really important in terms of taking down the Roman society, right? So Nero fiddling while Rome burned, he could have really had lead poisoning. So that's a question of what, what do we know now? We know that people have this in a way that we didn't know, certainly when I was growing up. If we were to, to go at all the toxins in the modern world, and we could wave a wand. I'm one, the question for me, which is very difficult to know the answer to, is have our multiple chemical exposures over the years done something basic to the genome so that we could never go back? And I, that is just a question that's so kind of beyond where I am in terms of a PhD level. I, I, I would think there's probably a plausible argument that we can't go back. Mm -hmm. And I think the danger is that we're changing something fundamental about what it means to be human. And let me give you an example of that. And it doesn't really deal with, is this helpful? Yes? Yeah, keep going. So it, it doesn't really deal with cancer. It deals with learning deficits, ADD. So, if we have changed the way people think or the way people learn, and, and there's a lot of evidence that toxic chemicals are involved in learning disorders. If we change that over time so that it, and, and it will have a different environmental component, let's say, you know, the clicking of the video games or TV or internet or whatever you want to say, we could change the way people relate to, say, printed material. And that would change us dramatically as yeah. a society. So could we go back? I don't know. Was that your question? Yeah, that's kind of a scary thought. I know, I'm not very careful, I'm sorry. <laughs> we have more scary questions. Kaylee, your question number one about women and environmental risk. Okay. 
You write about the role that estrogens may play in the development of certain cancers in women, which chemicals and which environments might be more risky for women. So I want to be super not critical. I'm not being critical at all. But I want to go at the basis of that question, right? And to go back and say, is it a woman's responsibility to keep herself free from these things, right? Because what's evolved, even since I wrote the book, is a real do-it-yourself mentality, right? So if I don't have, if I have the right water bottle, or if I buy the right couch that doesn't have any retardants, right? You can't shop your way to the answer to this. And the idea that so this is a bit of a complicated answer, but is it our responsibility as women, or especially, to go back to your question, our responsibility as mothers to keep this stuff out of our kids' you know, toys, pacifiers, bottles, whatever. Or is it, you know, is it essentially the government's responsibility to regulate these products? So that's not a great answer to your question. Specifically, what would a woman have to do? I can tell you what I always say. You're never going to be any healthier than your environment, right? So if you don't work in a factory, you don't want to be in the highest, highest polluted area that you can be, like in a bus terminal, right? Um, you probably shouldn't live over a dry cleaner. I mean, there are millions of those little things that I could tell you. But I would tell you specifically, to think about the assumptions in the question. Cool. <laughs> is that is that really cool or is that okay? Yeah, I mean, that's I, fine. Um, do you think it's safer to live like in the country, away from everything? So I think this is such the hard political reality of what people suffer through. I think it depends on, you know, probably not if you live next to a pig farm. No, mm -hmm. I don't think that that, I think it depends where in the country. No, no, if you, there's a lot of fracking and you live in the country in central Pennsylvania, no, I don't think that's safer necessarily. But I think to, to try to go back to the theme of the class, there is no away place, right? There is, like I would spend a month in the Adirondacks and I was there with some naturalists, and you can't get away in the huge Adirondacks Park that is most of New York State, you can't get away from the sound of cars. So I don't think there's another little place. Okay. Yes. All right, you guys look like vaguely uncomfortable. I have a 21-year-old son, <laughs> so I get vaguely uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> Teresa, you have a question about um, Theo Colburn's work. Yeah. Number two. You reviewed many studies that looked at the negative hormonal impacts of the chemicals in the Great Lakes. When you were younger, did anyone really think that these chemicals had the potential to be anywhere as near as harmful as they were found to be, or did no one really think much of them at the time either? So I think people know. I'm looking at Mary Friend because we lived in the same town. 
but you were kind of a crackpot. Even Theo Colbert was a crackpot, right? Rachel Carson was a crackpot. People thought they were nuts. People thought I was nuts. My own family thought I was nuts writing this book. <laughs> like, so I get to that part in the chapter where my husband says, can you prove any of this? Like, are you just going off and writing this stuff? Like, is this real? And I, I think it took a long time for people to understand the real impact of this. And, and women who are just a little bit older than I am will tell you about touching down in a foreign country and they would take the DDT and they would spray it up their skirts because they didn't want to, you to be bringing bugs into you know, across lines. So DDT was put into wallpapers in certain tropical climates. So I think certain people knew, but it took a very long time. Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Not terrible. Terrible. <laughs> so this notion um, of how we know takes us to evidence, which is a way we know. And Alex, your first question about weight of evidence. Yes. That's a big term, so ask away. All right. Well, in your, the last chapter of your book, you discuss the idea of weight of evidence in determining whether a substance is a carcinogen or not. Uh, could you explain the, uh, what is weight of evidence? Is this the Dobear one? Uh, yes, I believe it is. Okay. So... So there are two standards to think about, and one is the international standard of what is and isn't a carcinogen, and that's a group of scientists who get together and study. When I wrote this book, PCBs were a probable, and they moved up to be the highest class that they're likely carcinogens. So that's the whole scientific way of thinking that you guys would be really familiar with as college students. It's what you've done in your basic science classes. It's what does it take to prove something. <laughs> Lots of groups of scientists come together, peer-reviewed studies, everything that you would know very well. What happened in terms of the actual litigation around this in the workplace is that certain things happened about which evidence could be put in a trial. And that there were Dobert is a very technical legal concept, and it has to do with which evidence can be put into a courtroom setting. And there, I talked about one guy, and it's the Joiner case, right? That's actually what my other question was okay. about. Okay, you want to ask that one? Um, yes. There? So, in the case of Robert Joiner, an he was an electrician who worked with PCVs. And he went to the Supreme Court because of the company that he was working for. But the court basically dismissed his evidence because it wasn't officially like scientific. They didn't consider it to be valid, it being scientific evidence. So how can we hope to protect the uh, health and well-being of people if the courts won't accept uh, scientific evidence as actual evidence in court? So the interesting thing about the Joyner case is that GE had 
significant liability because GE had polluted the Hudson River with PCBs, like miles and miles of the Hudson River. And so they did two things. They went case shopping and they went venue shopping. And in case shopping, what they did, hoping to get this kind of ruling, they looked for the weakest possible case they could bring to the highest possible court and the most favorable court. So they went to a case in Georgia with a man who smoked. Um, and what he was arguing was not that the PCBs had caused his cancer, but instead that the PCBs had promoted his cancer. So there is no direct causal evidence that PCBs might be a cause of his cancer, especially with the confounding fact of him being a smoker. So in terms of how do we protect our health, I think that what's really significant about the Joyner case is that it made tort law, which is sort of the individual going after the corporation, a very difficult thing to do. Okay. So do you think that this will impact further cases? against big, large corporations that have been accused of pollution and negligence, per se, towards their employees and other people? I think, I think it makes it really difficult. Okay. And there are actually three separate rulings that impact this. And I think, I think that we don't see, for a lot of different reasons, the kind of like individual cases that can make law that were very effective early on in asbestosis and in cigarette smoking. We just don't see those anymore. And part of that too is that a lot of manufacturing is offshore now. Right. Right. It's not here, for better or for worse. And I, you know, you get into a level of complexity with these things as in, I, I would, highly suspect that a lot of this is going on in other countries where the manufacturing processes are not regulated. But then to go on to also know what their legal systems would be in terms of redress, it's just such a high level of complexity. It's hard to be say something really useful. Related but more personal question um, by Austin about question number two about dead ends. There were a lot of dead ends in, as you did research in Waukegan, including people moving away and the removal of his historical records mm -hmm. by the industries involved. Mm -hmm. Did you ever feel like giving up hope? Do you mean did I feel like giving up hope like I could never write the book or I felt like giving up hope like personally? Or are you talking about my cancer? Like, did I feel like I was terminal and I needed to give up hope? Uh, running the book. <laughs> <laughs> okay. For everything. Never feel like giving up. No, I was obsessed. <laughs> I was obsessed. Like, I don't know. No, I I felt a certain responsibility. I mean, as a survivor, as a witness, I was going to write this down. 
I mean, and I was doing it, I was doing it for myself, but I, there were hundreds and hundreds of people from my hometown who died of asbestosis. Like, probably thousands. Mary Fran, do you know how many? A lot. A lot. Like, everybody who worked in that plant, who worked for the man who was the manager, died. So I felt like I was doing it for myself, but I was also doing it for a whole town and a whole way of life that was gone. I mean, there, is a, there was a town called Monsanto, Illinois, that Monsanto just decided we better close and pay over. Right? We don't know what happened to the people of Monsanto or not. So I was, I was on a crusade. I was pretty nuts when I was writing it. Well, you mentioned asbestosis, and Stephanie, that made me think of your question number one. Oh, okay, so um, I've noticed like while watching television or like seeing billboards, there's usually those numbers you can call if you've been affected by asbestos. I was wondering if there was anything, any kind of like compensations that they offered for women who had fertility problems due to the toxins. No, asbestos is a, is a special case. First, it had it had a good deal of of individual litigation in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Then when Manville went bankrupt, they set up, it was, a, it was a strategic bankruptcy so that they could keep the company operating. It's now owned by Warren Buffett, who's a very famous investor. But they set up a trust for people who were affected by asbestosis. <coughs> so the signs that you're seeing are quite technical in the sense that they're aimed at getting those lawyers enough clients that they can get a piece of the trust. So that's what the signs are. In terms of getting help for women who would have had infertility, it would be almost impossible to prove that. It's true. <laughs> right, so, and you have to realize that when, again, to go back to the presumption of an individual, right, the weight of the evidence that that woman would have to have shown in an individual case does not equal the preponderance of the evidence that would make us say, well, we know pretty much, we're pretty sure that these things cause you know, infertility. That, that's actually pretty well documented. But you would never be able to say that for an individual. Yeah, I guess that's true. Maybe, um, do you think it would be possible that like if things had gone differently legally, that do you think that the company should have been held accountable and had to like compensate the town itself for what they did? Like, because it affects everyone. Right. Do you think like if they could have swung that legally, that would have been like a possibility? So there are a couple of things in that question that are really interesting, right? And one is it, it it's a question of tragedy of the commons, right? Like who pays when something, when one entity hurts so much that's so important? I mean, Waukegan is just a small microcosm. This went on all over the Great Lakes. The other, should the town have been compensated? I think the town was, was extremely complicit in that they, I was never specifically able to how the actual land deals went, but there was pollution from the lakefront that then ended up in the town landfill, right? That was then 
quickly transferred to the Board of Education. So town was somewhat complicit in, in it, and the town wanted those jobs. And, and even in the bleakest, darkest days, if you went down there, there were people who wanted those plants to keep going. Yes, yeah, it's true. So it, it, it's, but I think in your question, the, the larger themes is to think about the tragedy of the commons and to think about what are the externalities, right? Because you could never price a boat motor, which is what they made to pay for all the different damages that occurred to the town, to the people of the town, to the fish stocks in Lake Michigan. It, it, it's, it's an economic question, but it's a moral question. I guess, Stephanie, you have kind of a related question you, about environmental justice. Number, number three, I think. Yeah, um, so like, Going on about it, it is an economic problem, but I think it's also um, or the degree a uh, social justice kind of issue. So my yeah, question sure. is, kind of is it much for people on low income so they can also get to Lake Michigan as fish would provide a cheap source of food? Could you comment on the environmental justice or human rights aspects of the toxins in the fish? So in terms of it being documented, the population that the Illinois EPA was most worried about was the Hamans, which is a, they, from Vietnam. They were our allies during the Vietnam War, and they were eating a, a tremendous amount of fish, and it was very difficult to get the word out to them. Um, I think it's a huge environmental justice issue, and historically, like, it's very interesting for you, as you sit in Lake Forest College and you think about place. Um, Steve Rossworm couldn't be with us, but he's a professor here and he's, he's an expert in this. And what he talks about the development of Lake Forest as wanting to separate the owners who own the plants in Chicago, in the stockyards were active. They wanted Fort Sheridan, they wanted a hard base between the workers and the pollution and where their beautiful homes were. And that's something you'll see in a lot of different industrial areas, so that the plant is down by the lakefront, but the very more lovely homes were up on the bluff in Waukegan. So you always saw that separation. I think two things are happening now. One is there's a huge Mexican population that has moved into Lake Michigan, into Waukegan, and that is both somewhat historical and is a newer population. And I think that given the fact that the coal-fired power plant is there, that that is, continues to be a tremendous source of environmental degradation for them. So I do worry about environmental justice. And, but secondly, I think what's also happening is it's clear that there is no more demarcation between where the very rich people live and the not very rich people because these toxins have so much mobility. So I think that's going to change over time, but I do, I, I'm very concerned about it. If I may interject, I always thought of the, well, the Lake Forest setup as being separate from Chicago as mm -hmm. more being related to riots and like mm -hmm. haymarket bombing, right. such as those kind of events that forced the families of the right. owners, or the big factory right. ownership. Industrialists. Industrialists. Into houses like this. Into houses like this. <laughs> That's 
I never really thought of it as uh, being a pollution or pollution being a factor in that. But you're still separate. Well, it's similar. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. But it's that, that idea that you separate yourself from. This sounds very socialist, but it's kind of the modes of production. Like you're not uh, you're not near the factory, right? Mm -hmm. You're bringing yourself to a place of pastoral idea. <coughs> you know, with open lands, right? You're going to that pastoral place, that beautiful place, and you're separating yourself from the industry. But they lived down there. Most of the industrials lived in the city. This was, these were their summer homes. So they were living very close to the plants for a very, very long time. Yeah, so, I mean, I just needed no. to interject that. Because it wasn't as though they were completely right. removed and living in this right. wonderful pastoral perfection um, and not wanting to be near their plants right. because they were down there. Okay, maybe that's wrong. Mm -hmm. But I do think there's always been that desire to be separate. So we have probably 15 minutes or so, and we had several people who asked about questions related to cancer. Mm -hmm. So um, Lucy, you have a question, um, both questions one and two about ovarian cancer. Um, I know a lot of women that suffer from ovarian cysts, and I was wondering if you know if the cysts are correlated with ovarian cancer, and if they act as a warning, or do they put um, women more at risk for getting ovarian cancer? So I'm not a doctor, <laughs> but my belief is that they're fully unrelated. That the only time that ovarian cysts become really are, are more, in some ways, dangerous is for postmenopausal women. But no, I think they're not related. And my other question was, um, since your book was published, have you done any more research or heard of women today in Waukegan that are or continue to be diagnosed with ovarian cancer? I looked for evidence of that, and I think the, the thing that makes sense the thing that makes it so difficult to know is epidemiologically, so many people left, right? We left. So it was huge amounts of white flight. So we don't really know. And you, went, you wouldn't really be able to test the new population. So like when I started, I was really naive. I just went to the Lake County Health Department and I said, well, what do you know about and I tried to do it with these statistics, and that's when I figured out what was going on. So that's the part about the relationship between disease and place being right. lost. And you have kind of a related question, Danny, about um, your question number, well, it's one and two, about endometriosis. Yeah. Um, so like in the chapter, you talk about having your mother and sister having endometriosis. Um, I'm just wondering, like, you know how the rates of endometriosis have risen, rise since right. in the U.S. Um, what do you think the toxins in Lake Michigan and other Great Lakes have to do with endometriosis? I, I, there was a lot of evidence that it was particularly related. It was, there were studies that came out of Thunder Bay in Canada 
which also had its own PCB problem. And it, they, they weren't Illinois-based studies, they were Canadian, it's, that showed a fair amount of linkage. I felt very comfortable with that. And the Endometriosis Association, the American Endometriosis Association, is based here in the Midwest. And they felt very, the women I spoke to there were pretty convinced. So do you think that we could get endometriosis, we have a greater chance of getting it? No, I mean, that's why I want to talk about anxiety, right? I mean, I think. Almost nothing I say will relate to you. Okay. Right. The 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 water, the air, the fish. It, it, this is historic. I mean, Mary Fran and I maybe, but it's historic. It is not. You guys. It was a historic legacy pollution that was is essentially cleaned up now. So it has no effect on you whatsoever. It's a story. It's a model for you to think about disease and environment in place. But it's not, it is, there's no take home for you guys, right? Like you have to worry about anything. So this is related. Um, gosh, we have many questions we won't get to, but I do want to get to every person. So Brianna, your question number two. Um, are there other writers doing what you're doing? Like, in other words, are there people writing about the, the problems that you need some things on? to read? <laughs> <laughs> I did my work. I got your questions late last night. All right. <laughs> At midnight. There we go. So there are, the three, there are three writers that I like. Not necessarily writing about the Midwest. You guys might know more Midwest authors. There's a book called Full Body Burden which I, is also on the same topic. There's Terry Tempest Williams, is a beautiful writer. Uh, her family was from Utah and they witnessed the test bombs. Um, so that was really good. And Sandra Steingraber, she's actually from the Midwest. She writes about her experience with kidney cancer, bladder cancer. And then I was, I can push, pass this around. I thought this was really cool. This is a graphic um, illness narrative that this woman wrote and about her family. And it's a little bit, I don't know, it, I can move it here, pass it around. It might be interesting for you, because I really did a very old world journalistic complicated piece, but this is kind of fun and you can look at that. Thank you. You're welcome. And Amy, <laughs> last but not least, everybody else has had a chance to ask a question. Amy, your question's about one and two, about PCBs in the cleanup situation. Mm -hmm. Why don't you go ahead and ask those? Um, so first, so since chemicals are still being produced, do you think that there is a different type of pollution that is similar to PCB, or as damaging as PCB that is not yet widely known? So Catherine and I talked about this a little bit. Um, fire retardants in couches and things like that are beginning to be, I think they're called bromides, are beginning to be understood to be more dangerous than perhaps we realize. 
I think the way you have to think about the chemical industry is that there's commodity chemicals and then there's a specialty chemical industry where a lot of chemicals now are being formulated for specific uses. Um, and that's of concern because they're not, they're manufactured in large quantities, but they're not single use, so you wouldn't necessarily tie to any one individual product. Okay, yeah. So I think you'll, it's, it's going to be a little bit different. Right, and then going off of that, what is the current status of PCB remnants in Lake Michigan, especially in the Waukegan Harbor, and are there Superfund sites cleaned up? And so we talked about this also. The levels are quite amazing. They've done an amazing job. So they're much, much lower than of my childhood. The thing that they haven't done is, so the remediation is done. They have not delisted that site, which would mean it was polluting, right? They haven't taken it off the Superfund. They did delist it. Did they? Last summer, it was delisted by the EPA, the John, uh, the um, Outboard Marine. Yes. It, the PCBs are down to 1.1 million, um, which is basically the gold standard of um, EPA cleanup. Um, they did a cleanup in the 90s. Um, mm -hmm. It took it to 50 PCBs per 1 million, mm -hmm. which at the time they thought was okay. Um, then they revisited and realized it wasn't. So they came in and they did a, an extensive cleanup over the last five years, um, which was phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, you know, I can get Kathy in touch with any of the um, EPA people who are still in the area mm -hmm. finishing up the work. Um, it's really a fascinating story. Because it's a great story. It is a great story. So the Waukegan Harbor is um, very clean. In fact, it's cleaner than the Lake Forest Harbor and <laughs> certainly some of the ones in Chicago. People don't realize that. Mm -hmm. um, there, however, is still a surplus site, Superfund site, in, at Yeoman Creek um, with the methane gases in Waukegan. So it's not on the website, it's delisted. Did you look at that? Have you looked? Because I looked yeah. this morning. Yeah. It's not there, it's delisted. I'll tell Tim. Um, yeah. Drexler, who's that, that it should be on the website. Did you look on the city of Washington or the no, EPA.gov? EPA. So I looked at that. I was, because I was interested in that. I had seen the reports that it was delisted. And then I looked again. But it, it was an amazing job. It was an amazing engineering team. $40 million. And the fact that they got that in the city of Waukegan, because as we know, the city of Waukegan is, is not economically healthy, um, so that they concentrated their efforts on the city of Waukegan is something to be proud of, um, especially in a state like Illinois that uh, has lots of financial difficulties right now. So it was a, it was a, a very big deal. So good things. To go back to the personal, mm -hmm. Sammy, you have a question about uncertainty. It's your question number two. Yes. Um, there is much uncertainty about cancer, and physicians, physicians I'm sorry, um, try to practice evidence-based mm -hmm. medicine, yet your physicians disagreed about whether or not you should have chemotherapy. And, you know, in the end, you aren't sure what cured your cancer or if it will return. Um, how do we cope with that? I think, so I was reading about actually the San Bernardino, Bernardino shootings to, this morning and there was this wonderful quote in the newspaper and it was by a psychiatrist who said, you know, do what your grandmother told you to do, which is to keep busy, right? Which is a kind of a fake answer, but it's a real answer, which is, there's a lot of uncertainty, but unless you happen to be in a very intense medical situation, there's not a lot of reason for you to think about it. 
or for it to worry you. I think evidence-based medicine is very important when it comes to big diseases like breast cancer, which a lot of women had. I had a very rare disease. So there was not a lot of evidence. But that's unlikely to be a situation that any of you come to grips with. Keep busy. Is that the advice? That's the advice. What do you think? <laughs> See what your grandmother said. Keep going. Keep going. Absolutely. Write books. Write books. Get active. Eat in cafes. Go to the theater. Oh, go absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I would add to that, turn off the television. That's important, too. Right, to not, to not get overwhelmed with the information overload. Anybody have something they'd like to ask or talk about that we didn't do? A question, yeah, I didn't do all your questions. If there's one you'd really like to get in there, we have like three or four minutes. I have a question um, that I didn't get to. Um, you're right about the gene environment dance, but does it matter whether or not we think cancer is caused primarily by genes or by the environment? Do you think we would change our lifestyle and habits if we thought the environment was the primary cause of cancer over genetics? I think it matters. Let me say though that I think that the first, <coughs> the processes that give us cancer are the processes which gave us evolution. So you'll never stop that. Mm -hmm no matter what the rhetoric around winning the war on cancer is. I think if we were, I, and I don't mean we as citizens, I think if our government and our citizens, and we were very clear on what our goals were, we would change a great deal about how our industry operated. Mm -hmm. And I think that would be government, industry, public, coming together around those goals. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I do think it matters. Mm -hmm. Because I know, at least from personal experience, my mom is a breast cancer survivor and mm -hmm. my grandma's currently battling ovarian cancer and I know that puts me at a higher risk. Mm -hmm. um, but I feel like there's you know, nothing I can do about it because it's genetics. But you know, if, if it was the environment that factored those two um, cancers, then I feel like there's a lot I could do. So what I feel like for you is you have the advantage of being very young. And the knowledge that will be when you're even in 30 or 35 after you've had your children. So like my situation was very draconian. There was not a lot of evidence. Your situation, people are going to be all over it. So your age and the fact that there's so much work being done in those fields, I think time is on your side. <laughs> you know, we, we haven't talked, speaking of metaphors, about the living downstream metaphor. Mm -hmm. You know that metaphor, right? right? Tell them about that. Well, you, you, you touch on it a little bit in Lake Effect. Oh, the Sandra Steinberger book? Yeah, it's the public health metaphor. Oh, the babies in the, in the river? Yeah. Oh. So there's, I, I did most of the research from my book myself, but I live in Boston and there are lots of graduate students, like lots of women. So that I, a woman from MIT worked with me on some of the studies, understanding the studies. And we were talking, and she, she said, well, you know the story, don't you? I said, well, no, I don't know the story. And she, she said, well, but there's one baby in the river. You grab that baby out of the river, and you know, you get a clean clothes, and you take care of it. And then there's another baby, and you get that baby out of the river. 
And then, but by the time it's like the 50th baby in the river, you have to stop and say, we gotta do something about the babies in the river. But there's a kind of tipping point that happens. And I, I think probably we've reached that tipping point that more people are, are very active about it. So it's the idea that like what we've been really good at, and we know this from personal experience, is we've been, we're getting really good at curing cancer. Mm -hmm. And that's where all our research money, like the pink ribbon, all those things have gone for cures, which is really wonderful, but we haven't focused very much on causes. And I think, actually, that's related to your question, Austin. Should we throw it in here? <laughs> um, in 1984, the state of Illinois established the Health and Hazardous Substances Registry Act. The cancer registry part of this act was funded, but the Hazardous Substances Registry was not. Why do you think the Hazardous Substance Registry was not funded, and has this changed since the time you did your research? I don't know why. I could speculate. I think these were very, very powerful industrial forces that were working in Illinois at the time. Um, it was it was Manville OMC, GM had a plant, U.S. Steel had a plant, there was a tire plant, and that's just in this part of Illinois. So they were very powerful politically. Um, I will tell you about my own state of Massachusetts where they did fund, fund the registry, the toxic use reduction inventory is called. And it's been remarkable in terms of the amount of work they've been able to do with industry to reduce toxins in the state of Massachusetts. And so I think it's that public-private coming together that is gonna be so helpful in fixing this. That it's not a them and us, it's industry and public together. But that's a, you could write your thesis on that. Go find out what <laughs> Anything else? Well, thank you very much for um, coming, coming at this issue in two ways. One is the personal issue and being honest and open about that. Very honest book. But then the second is giving the science behind this. I believe that the personal and the scientific can go together. Mm -hmm. They can work hand in hand. And so thank you for doing that in your book. Thank you. Thanks for being with us. Thanks. Thank you. We can turn off the recorder now, David. <laughs> So my class, you know, help yourself, take cupcakes with you. Your ticket to your final exam is to bring back the planisphere. Thank you, Teresa. That's your ticket to the exam. I'll send you back home if you don't have it. You'd have to drive to Grace Lake. So the remember the planisphere, those big ones that we bought to look at the night sky. That's your ticket to come see me next Friday. <laughs>